and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Charlie Williams, past president of Radiology Associates of Tallahassee and a member of the practice for over 48 years. A pediatric radiologist by training, Dr. Williams has been tremendously active in supporting the Florida Radiological Society and the American College of Radiology for many years, earning gold medals from both organizations. A willing volunteer for many causes and a raconteur of the highest order, Dr. Williams has amassed a remarkable set of life experiences and stories to share. Charlie, welcome. Thank you kindly. Good to see you, Dr. Rubin, and thank you for this opportunity. I'm 82 years old, and I've seen a lot in my time, but the older I get, the better I used to be. (laughs) Excellent. Let's rewind it to the beginning. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised? I was born in the country. Nearest town was Moultrie, Georgia, in South Georgia. I was born at home in 1940. And my parents were sharecroppers, that's tenant farmers. And how that came about was my grandfather in 1918 died with the Spanish flu and left grandma with seven youngins. And they all tried to save the farm and didn't go to school. So consequently, my dad and his siblings could not read and write. How that came about was they planted cotton two years in a row, and Banks got the land, Bowie's got the cotton, and they became sharecroppers. My grandma's seven kids couldn't read and write, but when she died, seven of the eight grandkids were MDs carrying her coffin. My dad and family, they gave us a lot of love, and they did have common sense, My dad is proud of me. I know he is. I saw it in his tears the night I graduated from high school. And sometimes I wish I'd stayed and taken my place with the home folks. But now I have different shingles on my roof. But I was very fortunate in school to get a few scholarships and go on. And teachers saw in me, as well as the local merchants, things I didn't see in myself. Wow, that is a remarkable origin. So in your household, how many brothers and sisters did you have? I had two sisters, but most of the ones that went to medical school were my cousins. When I was a freshman in medical school, I had a cousin that was a sophomore, a junior, a senior, and one had already graduated. We're all from the same county and country, and our parents were all farmers, and our parents couldn't read and write. And Mama cooked on a wooden stove, and we took our baths in a tin tub, and we didn't have electricity. We had an outhouse. Were you living with your extended family, your cousins and your uncles and aunts? The house that I was born in had three rooms. It's called a shotgun house. And the shotgun, because when you opened the front door, you could see straight through to the back door. But we all were scattered over the county. And we kept moving, thinking the next place would be better. And so when I was about 11 years old, we moved into a house that had indoor plumbing and indoor toilet. How did you have the opportunity to do that? Well, after the war, 
My dad was drafted. He hadn't traveled much, but he was in the Battle of the Bulge, and they were surrounded by Germans eight days and nights. He got frozen feet and a bleeding ulcer, and they had to take out a good bit of his stomach. And Patton came in and saved them. And when he got out, he knew he wasn't going to make it sharecropping. So he got a job in a meatpacking company, and they gave him a job killing hogs, which he did for the rest of his life. We were able to get our first car, and we got a house with electricity. So I was very fortunate. Wow. Yeah, that's a big bump up in the quality of living, it sounds like. You refer to your cousins a fair bit. You mentioned that they were scattered around the county. Were you connecting with them a lot? Yeah, like when I was in medical school, for instance, I didn't have the money to get a good microscope. And so we all banded together and got a real good one. And the cousin that was a sophomore would meet me before the microbiology lab and hand me the microscope to go in and take the test. So we shared a microscope. It's remarkable that so many in your generation sought medical school and to become physicians. Was this something that you think was transferred from your grandparents in some way? Well, Grandma warned us to get an education because it was something they couldn't take away from you. And we looked around in the community, and the people that contributed in the community were the physicians, and they had the highest respect. And we knew we wanted to get out of those cotton fields. Every time we'd have a family reunion, they'd always say, get your education. It's something they can't take away from you. You mentioned how your father was sharecropping until the war, and then he was working in a meatpacking plant. How about your mother? Was she working outside of the home? Well, mainly in the earlier years, she was doing things like canning and putting up food from the garden so we'd have plenty to eat. And after I went off to college, she started working as a receptionist in the doctor's office. I see. Okay. And your sisters, are they younger or older? They're younger, but one of them stayed there and tried to farm. And nowadays, if you're going to farm, you need to win the lottery until the money runs out. Now the farming is big corporations instead of the 40-acre farms. But she stayed there and tried to farm most of her life. My other sister's out in California. They both got college degrees, but neither one went into medicine. Like Grandma had three boys named Miller, Dillard, and Willard. Willard's grandson just finished his pulmonary infectious disease residency, and he's practicing in North Florida. I think now Grandma has about 20-something descendants that are MDs. But if you had looked at Dad, like when Dad went into town on Saturday to get flour and wearing his overalls, he wasn't trying to make a fashion statement. They were good people, but because of the Spanish flu, they lost their opportunity. But most of the children did well in school, and they got scholarships. And this was all in Moultrie? Moultrie was the nearest town, but Cockwood County. And when I wrote my books, I wrote about growing up under these conditions in that family. And if you just do humor, it's slapstick. If you do philosophy, it becomes evangelical. So I intertwined the short stories. And the Florida Radiological and the Capital Medical Society started printing them. And some of them were reading the stories to their children to serve as motivation. Can you recall one story that you published from your childhood that folks really seem to enjoy and like to share with one another? 
Well, I can give you some thoughts on it. Like the other day, I was laying on the back porch with my toes up in the air, calling the dogs, drinking iced tea out of my wife's finest china. And my mind went back to grandma, who's now passed on. But I'm so glad she passed my way. And the only thing she had to pass on to me, she called me Pedro, was her memories. And she'd grab me by her hands, which were wrinkled like dried apples, and we'd walk down this long dirt road to a rusty tin mailbox that had some of our last name spelt right. And she talked to me about life, about getting my education. She said, you didn't have to hang from a tree to be a nut. And it wasn't so much what she said with her mouth, but what I saw in her eyes and felt from her heart. She always wanted me to keep on a clean change of underwear. Well, the other day, I was walking to the mailbox with my grandson and looked down and noticed a few wrinkles in my hand and a chill set in my body and a wetness set in my eyes. And I started talking to my grandson about getting his education and keeping on a clean change of underwear. I got back to the house and I must have fallen asleep because I leaned back in my recliner And I heard Grandma sing, Precious Memories, How They Linger, How They Ever Flood My Soul. Wow, that's beautiful. You mentioned that your grandma called you Pedro. Why did she do that? Well, when I was born, I weighed around three pounds. And she came in and looked down and said, Look at little Pedro. And all my kinfolks started calling me that. And at the hospital, when I hear somebody page, Dr. Pedro, I know it's one of my kinfolks. Oh, gosh, that's great. It's just your kinfolks that call you Pedro? Well, now some of the people after my books at the meetings will call me Pedro. So growing up, what was your first job outside of the house where you earned an income? Well, picking cotton from the third grade in other people's fields because dad wouldn't pay me as long as belts lasted. So I'd pick cotton for neighbors and friends and family, and we were paid $3, a 100 pounds. But $3 back then could buy a pair of blue jeans. Mama had made me up to the third grade. My shirts were made out of flower sacks. When she went into town to get flour, I went with her because I didn't want the one with daisies on them. But when I started picking cotton, I could get close to 100 pounds, and therefore I could buy a store-bought shirt or some Levi's. That was the first job. Then when I was 13, I started working in the men's department at Belt Hudson's. I got my Social Security card then, and then I moved down to the drugstore, the cash drugstore, and worked behind the fountain at 14. At 15, I moved to a men's clothing store, and out of high school, I would go around 3 o'clock around to the clothing store and work, and he would go play golf. And I did that through high school, but then when I got off work, I'd have to walk home or either hitchhike. In Moultrie, people knew you, and they'd pick you up. So I was able to dress nicely and everything from working. But I had to grow up early because so many times dad had issues or he bought something. He'd want me to read it and get my approval. But I bought my own clothes and everything. And I don't regret any of this because I think we are who we are, not only by what we have, but what we didn't have that gives us that incentive and that drive. 
You mentioned all these positions and jobs in high school. It sounds like a lot of your discretionary time was spent working. But what about when you were in high school? Did you have any particular hobbies or extracurricular activities, or did you hold any leadership positions? Our high school was consolidated with the whole county. We had moved so much that I knew a lot of people. I went to multiple different grammar schools. So when we started high school, I knew a lot of people. I was president of the freshman class and treasurer of the senior class and, you know, president of the science club and a few other things. So I was very fortunate that I received a career achievement award from my hometown and I served as the Grand Marshal in their parade. But the stage I stood on now is the Coquit County History Museum. They have a plaque in there of me. But that was the same stage I stood on to give a speech in 1953 when I was running for president of the freshman class. Let's stick with those earlier days. Clearly, the leadership bug bit you early. What was it that led you to seek these leadership positions to be president of your freshman class and these other roles you described? I don't know. I was friendly with people and liked people and there was more like me in Coquit County than there was children of the bankers. And so I was one of them, so to speak. And many of them, because of the way I grew up, cheered me on. And being elected president of freshman class in high school, about 300 in the class, was a big confidence booster for a kid with the way I grew up. And did you seek the role because you were seeking to contribute something specific to your friends and to life in high school? No, I didn't seek the role. In fact, when I was in eighth grade, they came to me and said, we're going to run you for president of the freshman class. When I went to Mercer, I wasn't going to join a fraternity. I didn't have the money. ATO fraternity came to me and said, if you join our fraternity, we'll run you for a class office. And I didn't have the money. And there was a guy from Rome, Georgia, whose father had some factories, wealthy. He said, if you join our fraternity, I'll pay the expenses. So that's how I was able to do that. And consequently, I was vice president of the freshman class at Mercer, president of the sophomore class, and president of Blue Key. Now, Nathan Dill, who just finished being governor of Georgia for eight years, he was in the same fraternity. We lived across the hall, and he was vice president of the sophomore class the year after I was president, and he was president of Blue Key the year after me. That's really something. Now, we've advanced a little bit into college, and you mentioned that you went to Mercer. I want to talk a little bit about your college experience, but I'm really intrigued by you know what seemed to be some aspect of your personality and your persona that led other people to just come to you and say, we want you to be our leader. It happened in high school, and you just described that it happened in college, particularly with the fraternities. And so I just kind of like you to sort of look inside yourself for a moment and try to answer the question, what was it that folks were seeing that they were coming to you with these requests for you to lead? It mainly had to do with networking and people, and some of it may have been the way I grew up. You know, it was a confidence builder, and it was an assurance, hey, you're okay. It was like you're trying to prove to yourself that you were as good as other people, I guess. But I've been very fortunate along those lines. I was an officer my junior year of medical school and my senior year of medical school. Now, you mentioned about jobs. The worst job I ever had 
turned out to be the best job I ever had. I had finished college and was looking for anything to do, and there wasn't anything. I said, I'll do anything. I was supposed to be head to med school that fall, and they gave me a job carrying tar buckets to tar warehouse roofs for seven men. A guy came along in a Cadillac who happened to own the company, said, who's that little boy up there carrying tar buckets? And he called me down. He found out I had a college degree and head to medical school. He just so happened to be on the board, the Ty Cobb Foundation, which gave 33 scholarships. 29 had to be renewed. And he made sure that I was one of the remaining four to get those scholarships. And it was one you didn't have to pay back. And that really helped me get to med school. But when I went to medical school, for my interview, I left Moultrie on Friday hitchhiking. I caught a ride in the back of a chicken truck and I made it finally to Dublin, Georgia. Didn't make it all the way to Augusta where the Medical College of Georgia is located. And I had to spend the night alongside the road in the ditch. And then finally I kept hitchhiking, finally made it to Augusta. And I went into a Texaco station to clean up to go in for my interview for medical school. And a lot of it has to do with determination because when I was 15, I went to Dr. Gay's office, who was a block from the courthouse square, and sat down on the sidewalk one afternoon waiting for him to come out. And finally it got to be dark and he came out and I hopped up and said, Dr. Gay, how do you get to be a doctor and how do you get there from Moultrie, Georgia? And he looked me straight in the eye and said, you just have to want to bad enough. If you want to bad enough, all the hard work and discipline will fall into place. And I started walking home thinking and dreaming. Was that the moment that you committed to becoming a physician? No, it was earlier. At what point did you say medical school is definitely where I need to be? Well, I didn't know too much about medical school when I was a six-year-old, but I wanted to be a doctor. And how that came about was in 1940s, a doctor came to town and bought a farm to raise chickens and cotton. He selected my Aunt Pearlie and Uncle Willie to be his tenant farmers, and we lived just a short piece down the dirt road. He would come late in the afternoon to get eggs and check on things, and I would come running barefooted with a dirty face behind his black, new, shiny car. And I was a kid in need of heroes and mentors, and I would say, Dr. Polk, I'm doing a good job keeping the egg-sucking dog out of the hen house. And he would pat me on the head and say, Pedro, you are a good boy. And I believed him because he was our doctor. He served as a mentor for me, and I wanted to be like him. Then time goes by. And I graduated from medical school, and I went by his office, and I told him, I'm Pedro, guardian of the hen house. And he grabbed me and hugged me for about two minutes, and I thought I saw a tear on his cheek. Time goes by, and his wife is having a coronary artery bypass at my hospital. And he came down to see me, and he'd gotten old, and his vision was poor, and he again grabbed me and hugged me. And I thought I felt a tear on my cheek. And as he was walking away, I was thinking, he never knew the influence he had on me, and neither did I at the time. And I started thinking, maybe I should try harder and do better because another barefooted kid might be watching. So you went to Mercer for college, and you knew 
from the time you were six years old that you were going to be a physician? I wanted to be. In fact, when the people signed my annual when I was 13 and during my senior, 20 or 30 of them signed, said, good luck. I know you're going to make a good doctor. Beautiful. And so what did you study when you were at Mercer? I did a science concentration, predominantly chemistry and minor in physics and biology. And I didn't take any speech classes, but I've had the opportunity to be the dinner speaker in about 40-something states. In some states, like Tennessee, seven or eight times. You mentioned then you went on to the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta and finished medical school around, what, 1966? The Vietnam War was raging on around that time. Were you drawn into the military? Yeah, but when I finished medical school, you could go directly into practice. But I felt like I needed more learning, so I did an internship, and I did what they called back then a GP residency because I didn't know about radiology. And then I went into the Air Force as a captain, and my whole two years in the Air Force, I did nothing but pediatrics because they were a pediatrician short. And since I had done a family practice residency with a lot of pediatrics in it, they chose me to join the pediatric department. So what led you to join the Air Force? And it sounds like you were practicing medicine the whole time and really not even taking care of soldiers or any enlisted men or officers. It was really just their children. Well, back then, during my day, you got drafted. And so I chose the Air Force over the Army. I was stationed at Homestead, and there was a radiologist there by the name of Bob Steiner. At first, when I got there, he felt sorry for me because he'd never met a Southerner. And then later, he told me he was embarrassed because he said, I think you knew more than me. But anyway, I was seeing a lot of well-baby checkups, runny noses and ears, and finally I decided I wanted to maybe do something else. And I watched Bob Steiner, and he suggested pediatric radiology. And he suggested that I go out to Texas and spend time with Ed Singleton. I see. And so, I mean, here you are, a Georgia boy all your life, and you went to Texas for residency. Yeah, mainly because of the Texas Children's Hospital in Baylor. And Ed Singleton, I really loved, and he should have kicked me out of his program because the day I arrived, the auditorium was filled with people from MD Anderson and Baylor and University of Texas. And I was on the third row and these pediatricians were there and all the radiologists, the place was packed and I was on the third row. He was showing a case of a dwarf, a chondroplastic dwarf. And then he said, this mother had six others just like them. Does anybody know this family? And I raised my hand and asked him if her name was Snow White. <laughs> and he stopped the conference and said, who are you? I said, I'm Charlie Williams from Moulton, Georgia. And he said, that explains it. And then over the years, we stayed in touch and he wrote me some nice letters. And when I was a speaker at the state meeting in Texas, he came to sit with my wife and he wrote me and said, I was his favorite raconteur I called him back and said that I had to go to the dictionary to look that word up. But we stayed friends, and before he died, he called me and said, Charlie, I'm still working. My body ain't what it used to be, but my mind's okay. If it's not, they hadn't told me. And I said to him, Ed, they may have told you, but you forgot. 
But he was a big influence on me, and so was Dick Fisher out there and Stuart Bashan and a few others. Sounds like you didn't hesitate to step outside the norm and let your presence be known and to exercise your sense of humor. Well, he had a sense of humor, fortunately, and as a result, over the years, we stayed in touch quite often before he passed away. Just to turn a moment back to this decision to go into radiology, you mentioned that Bob Steiner had a big impact on you in that regard. What was it that told you that a life career in radiology was what you wanted to pursue rather than taking care of children or the general practice that you trained for? Well, the patients you get were those that were referred by pediatricians, so he wasn't just doing a lot of well baby checkups. You can all be leaders in your community if you look after the patients and you take care of the referring physicians. When I arrived in Tallahassee, we had one employee in our private office. We now have 250. I was the first subspecialty to arrive. And in time, the pediatricians, they made me members of their department as well as the radiology. And in time, they would send me cases, not just ordering an exam, but for example, the patient makes a funny noise or the patient has blood in the stools. Do what you need to do to work that case up. And I found out in radiology, just like in mammography, you can spend time with mamas and grandmamas and be a physician, and it's not just sitting in a dark room. And that's what I like about pediatric radiology. And it just thrilled my soul when I'd reduce an interception to walk out and tell them their child's going to be all right. There was a committee I was on in ACR called Branding. And they decided to take out full-page ads for the USA News and World Report. And it went to New York and Miami and some of the big cities. But that didn't touch the vast majority of people, and particularly the Midwest and the South. And Murray Janover, who was president of the ACR, said it very well. When you walk into a room, say, I'm Dr. Williams, you're a radiologist, and I'm going to be taking care of you. And I think we can all be leaders along those lines, but different people on different scales. For example, if a patient's been waiting out in the waiting room for a while, patients will tolerate a lot if they know you have their interests. So I would walk out and speak to them and say, I know you're here. I'm sorry there's been some delay, but as soon as they get the room set up, once we get you in there, we're going to take care of you, and we're going to look after you. And if you connect with the patients, the referring doctors appreciate it, but also the patients deeply appreciate it. Yeah, such important points. And so you completed extra training beyond your radiology residency to focus on pediatric radiology specifically? Then I left Texas, and I talked with Ed Singleton, but I wanted to be near my cabbage patch. And Tallahassee, you know, is only about 55 miles from where I was raised. So I figured it would be easier to get a job if I was down at Shands in Gainesville. And I was their first fellow in pediatric radiology. And now I have a daughter that raises funds for the alumni down there. But anyway, went down there with Al Feldman. And he was a pediatric radiologist. And what he mainly taught is not every detail, but he taught 
how to approach a problem. And Jerry Schiebler, who was chair of pediatrics, wrote the letter for me to come to Tallahassee. Well, one time I bumped into him at AMA meeting. He'd been chair of the Department of Pediatrics. I said, you know my wife. And he turned to her and said, this is the fellow that wrote the nicest letter about himself, and he made me sign it. Of course, he was kidding. (laughs) So you went to Tallahassee, you spent time at Shands, you tuned up your pediatric radiology and such. And so when you were done with your training, what was your next step? Well, I went to Tallahassee and the pediatricians were making a lot of noise. And so the group, there was only four, decided to hire a pediatric radiologist to satisfy them. But when I arrived, they said you need to do general radiology in order to be in this group and take night call and all. And so the first case I had was a pancreatic arteriogram, even though I'm a pediatric radiologist. But the first thing I did was I went around to every pediatrician's office, sat down with them, find out what the problems were and how can we solve it and how can I best serve them. So I had to practice pediatric radiology almost as a hobby in addition to the diagnostic. But as time went by, we now have like four neuroradiologists, three musculoskeletal, and we have a med school. And like I said, when I first arrived, we had one employee in the office. We got 250 now, a 750-bed hospital. Was the practice called Radiology Associates of Tallahassee back then? Well, when I first arrived, it was called McCullough, Lindsay, and Bonk, and they've all passed on now. And Radiology Associates, uh, Tallahassee, shortly thereafter it became. After I arrived, I was chair of the department within nine months. Yeah, that's something. How did that happen? I mean, you arrived and boom, you're chair of the department in nine months. I don't know. They just selected me, I guess, because I was available, you know, as long as somebody would do the work and We were the first ones to get a CT scanner in Florida, the sixth in the nation. And folks were coming from Gainesville, Pensacola, and Jacksonville to get a CT scanner. The neurosurgeons wanted to read them. The neurologists wanted to read them. Radiologists wanted to read them. There was no place to go. So how we solved that was it was put at the hospital. And we first did it without contrast. And then with contrast, it took three minutes per slice. And we said, okay, if you want to do it, you got to come over from your office. And they didn't want to sit through a whole thing of three minutes per slice. And we charged $10 to read a CT head. And then within two years, we hired a neuroradiologist and a second one. And presently, we have four. How did it come to pass that amongst all of the centers in the United States that would be interested in seeking CT scanner, that you received the sixth CT scanner available there in Tallahassee? Well, we had a guy over in England, and it was the old EMI scanner, and it had something to do with the Beatles, and it showed such promise. An order was placed two years before they came out. So when it did come out, we would be the first in Florida to get it. Whose idea was it to place that order? Well, it was a physician that placed it, but then it was a hospital that accepted it. And four of us did an exhibit in the fall of 1974 to the Florida Medical Association. We have a cerebral arteriogram. And back in my old days, I had to do about 15 of those a day. And then we'd have the EMI scan beside each other. And we put on the exhibit, and most doctors had never seen one. 
And it took us two years before we could get a neuroradiologist that had the training. And we had the same problem with ultrasound. The hospital wasn't going to put one in. We said, we'll do it in our office. When we ordered, they said, oh, we'll put it there. It was the old B scanner. And I went off like the Chapel Hill. I went out there with Faye Lang in San Francisco, went around before it got there to learn how to do the old B scan. And finally it was set up. And OBs and other doctors wanted to do it. And they said, okay, we don't have a tech. You have to come and do it. Well, they wouldn't leave their office. So we only had the radiologist doing the B scan, didn't have a tech. The pattern got established. After about six to nine months, we trained techs. Then those same techs we trained was with us for about 30 years. Really great messages in the establishment of CT and ultrasound in your practice. The willingness for the radiologists to spend the time, do the procedure, is what led to it staying within radiology. So I appreciate your telling that story. Now, over a 30-year period, from 1975 to 2005, you were the department chair for 12 of those years, at least, in four discrete blocks. And those blocks were between one and four years. That's an unusual distribution of activity. Can you help us understand what was going on there, why you were chairman for a while and then not chairman, then chairman again, and back and forth? Well, when I became chief of staff of the hospital, I was the only person in the history to be chair of the executive committee more than once at the hospital. And I felt like I had to place myself in a position that was not the appearance of conflict when you're looking out for the whole medical staff. In fact, we were the first place in Florida to do heart transplants. We don't do it anymore. It was too costly. But I became dear friends with the CEO and in fact, when he died in his 90s, his wife asked me to do his eulogy, which I did. But the problem was the next CEO was not that way. He entered my office and said, we want you to sign this white paper. And looking over it, it was where they could get rid of you without calls. So what I did, I went to Radiology Associates and got them to donate $30,000. We got attorneys. In the meanwhile, they have gotten rid of the radiation oncologist, but they didn't put him through the bylaws. And I formed what we call concerned physicians. I selected one from the internists, the OBGYNs, the pediatrics pathologists, and we developed what we call a black paper. And we raised money through the medical staff with us donating 30000 as radiologists, and we would meet weekly. And things got tougher and tougher because of the CEO and what he was kind of controlled. They brought in a law firm, and they stood up before the medical staff and said, we represent offices in Pittsburgh, Houston, Paris, and everywhere else. And I stood up and said, I'm radiology associates. We have offices in Perry and Quincy, the little towns around here. And they had said that in Houston, Texas, it's not unusual for radiologists to move from one hospital to another. And I stood up and said, I was in Houston, Texas, and you can change hospitals without changing parking lots. And this is no Houston, Texas. And what can happen to one of our brothers can happen to us all. In the meanwhile, we got up a vote of no confidence. And nobody wanted to be the first name on the list, so I got the six past chief of staff to sign it, 
And then people started signing it. Then I had a contact with a newspaper and headlines were 85% of the medical staff has vote of no confidence for this CEO. We're still there and he's gone. Well, that's a remarkable story of advocacy from within. It sounds like this activity was taken external to the medical staff organization, but still essentially led by the medical staff leadership. Well, they made me after that chair of the bylaws committee. And what happened is as long as the hospital follows the bylaws, they can do a lot. But what we did was change the bylaws and raise the bar. And shortly thereafter, I got a call from a radiologist in West Palm Beach, and they had let him go. And I asked him, did they follow the bylaws? And I found out they didn't. He asked me to come down there and talk to him, and I did. It was settled out of court. I don't know how many million he got. I see that you were also president of the group of Radiology Associates of Tallahassee. And if I'm reading things right, you were initially president and then subsequently vice president and then subsequently serving on multiple committees. That seems a little backwards from how it usually works. Do I have that right? Well, I got involved with a lot of things, the state, the ACR, the council steering committee, the board of chancellors. You know, a person can have battles, but they have to choose their battles. Everything can't be a battle. But I was very fortunate with the groups. When I got involved with organized radiology, the group allowed me to have the first choice of vacations and everything else so I could arrange them around the ACR and the FRS, the Florida Radiological and all. And that's how that came about because it was hard to be president of the group and do a lot of the other things. And I was just like any other radiologist, sitting there trying to keep my numbers up. But... When I got involved with the Florida Radiological, the first meeting I ever went to, there was 15 of us in fall of 74, and we showed interesting cases. I remember it very well. I showed a case of ascariasis on the GI study. They introduced me as this kid from South Georgia whose idea of a seven-course meal was a six-pack of beer and a plate full of possum, and I stood up and said, that's a dead burn lie. I don't even drink beer. <laughs> and since that time... We even have 80 and 90 residents to come to our meeting. We have 250 to come to our meeting. I've been very, very fortunate because Florida Radiological established a Charles D. Williams Legacy Lecture that they bring in national speakers. And we've had good leadership, like with Larry Miroff and Mike Raskin, and we've kept the old-timers there with the historical past. But I was, just like any other radiologist, working hard, concerned about my practice, got a call from Florida Radiological that says, we need somebody to be chair of the legislative committee, and you're in Tallahassee, which is the capital, so would you chair that? And they said, you won't have anything to do. And it sounded like my kind of committee, so I said, okay. And at that time, the self-referral bill hit in 1992. And a lot of times what happens in one state moves to other states. Gary Price of the ACR came down and they gave $30,000 to encourage that bill. We didn't have a lobbyist, but sometimes what happens in Florida moves to New York or California and across the rest of the country. And that's why ACR was involved. And I had to testify a lot 
I brought Larry Muir off. He was a good guy to testify for the legislature. Got in my car and I traveled down the peninsula of Florida, going to each office as much as I could to tell them what was happening. So we fought for the bill. And what it was, if you have certain equipment, in this case, designated services, it's CT, MRI, PET scan, nuclear med, and Lord knows, I don't know why, they threw in bronchography and lymphangiography, but I wasn't going to fight that. And we somewhat won. Now, there were safeguards, like radiation oncology could practice their treatment. The nephrologists could practice with dialysis, and they were excluded. And the urologists with lithotripsy, and the radiologists with exceptions. But finally... Those people like orthopedists, for example, as long as they stayed within the framework of knees and hips and all, could have one in their office. Well, we have 30 orthopedists, and we should have a radiologist that sits over there. Well, the next couple of years, they wanted to change it where they could take outside referrals. I mean, orthopedists can't do chest or heads. They want to raise that number to 50 to 70%. I tried to get it down to at least 15%, give them something, but still win. And I went to the legislature, the head of the Senate, and said, I need to add two sentences to it. And they said, well, $50,000, we can get it done. If you don't have that kind of money to do it, you got to know where the skeletons are. So I contacted a friend of mine, and in Winter Park, who knew where the skeletons were, our client said, I need your help. And he said, be down there tomorrow, write it out, and keep it about two or three sentences, which I did. And there were thousands trying to get in at that time. And the bill went through where it's limited. You can only take 15% outside referrals. You know, strategy is a lot. And the year after that, they were going to put taxes on all doctor's offices in Florida. The Florida Medical Association fought it. And I went to my group to ask for $100, and I was turned down. After the session, the only thing that stood that people that had to pay taxes were the radiologists. If you had a CT scan in your office, you're going to have to pay tax on your chest, your hands, your fingers, anything. My group then gave me $10,000 to get it off. Now my group puts $25,000 a year into a pack. And they don't even know it. it comes out of the salary. So we can donate the FRS or ACR. And you should, I got tired of going and asking for $100 or $200,000. dollars well we fought this and we had to get an outside group to sue the state of Florida over this. And I testified and said, this is a societal problem. You don't tax attorneys to build prisons. You don't tax grocery stores to feed the homeless. What we did first was get them to put it in escrow. And as time went by, we won. It was about $170 million to return back to the radiologist, but they appealed it because it was so much money. And so the next year, we won it, and all that money was returned to the radiologist. So there's been a lot of battles in Florida. In fact, there was even one where an orthopedist had a resolution 
that radiologists don't read their films unless it's positive. <laughs> and we got Tom Greason to come down. We had to go to the Florida Medical Association. And they wanted that to serve as an example to AMA for the whole country. Anyway, we got that defeated. It's a remarkable accounting of so much commitment to this role as a legislative representative for the FRS. I think that it's also a remarkable statement of the critical role that advocacy plays in helping to shape our field and shape our practice. The effort that you as an individual you know, put into place in embracing this role, a role that was presented to you as, oh, not too much to do, and you really took it on. And, you know, the influence that you brought is remarkable based on what you just told us. Now, by my count, you held at least 80 formal roles with the Florida Radiological Society and the American College of Radiology, including being the president of the FRS, vice president of the ACR, culminating in receiving gold medals from both organizations. You must have found it tremendously rewarding to commit so much time to those organizations. What drove you? What led you to continue to commit for so many years in so many roles? It was all like a big family. And I made so many dear friends. And then I learned that part of leadership is networking, knowing who to call on. I've been very fortunate to receive a few honors but the greatest honor I ever received was when my wife, Pat, agreed to marry me. And she's been my biggest supporter and my biggest cheerleader. But talking about the legislature, I've been very, very important. In January of this year, Florida legislature gave me a Lifetime Career Achievement Award, the same one that I fought and all. And sometimes you need to be on the inside. You need to be at the table. And... You need to make friends with those that disagree with you. This year, the Florida House of Representatives, the state legislature, recognized you with a special award. And you told us just a moment ago about the efforts that you had to make to tear down some of the actions of the legislature many years ago. You know, to what do you attribute this remarkable recognition? from the state legislature based upon your years of contribution? Well, actually, we had a real good lobbyist. When I talk to people across the country about getting a lobbyist, some of them say we can't afford one. I said, yes, but join with other groups. Maybe it's a used car salesman lobbyist and all, but don't join with the one that's orthopedist or cardiologist. There'd be conflict of interest. This person only lobbied for us, and if she lobbies for anybody else, she gets our approval. But her husband has a huge lobbying firm here in Tallahassee. So we get the benefits of that firm. And I think because of the contacts of these lobbyists, they were the ones that were able to get that through with the legislatures. I want to ask you, when you think back of all the roles that you've filled over these last 40-plus years, which do you find most rewarding? One benefit was the ethics committee. We just had a little task force to sit down what we do, and there's always two sides to something. It's not always what they seem, and one side's going to be happy. So they would send boxes of material to go through, and as far as the biggest role, it was sort of establishing the ethics committee. And when we first met, we had ethicists that would sit with us and they'd try to give the history from Rome on up 
And I found out there's all kind of ethics, legal ethics, business ethics. What it comes down to, they wanted to give the history of ethics. And finally, we had to narrow it down to common sense ethics. What would grandma do? And I tell you, I learned a lot from her over the years because in medical school, I got an A on my psychiatric paper about this. Tell me about your mama. Tell me about your daddy. And then years later, I find out that it had nothing to do with mom and daddy. It had to do with chemical imbalance. And then when I was in medical school, they treated diverticulitis with a soft diet. Now it's a high-fiber diet. And the main thing which has held up over the years is what grandma taught me. Be good to your neighbor and they'll be good to you. Look on the sunny side of life. Amongst all of the activities, the ethics side of things really resonated with you? Yes, and the other committee was the Government Relations Committee. I found that interesting, and I visited Washington a lot. Yeah, I mean, it really seems like you have been very committed to making a difference at a very high level legislatively, and you've been very effective in it. And the ethics, I see the connection to your roots and your moral compass and helping to guide the organizations ethically. You and Larry Muroff wrote an article in the JACR, which you followed up with a number of speaking engagements on apathy in private practice. Do you recall your main points in those presentations? It seems like it's a real important topic. Larry's been a dear friend since 1972 when he was president of the A-Cube-CR Square, the chief residence. That's when we first met. We first came to Florida. And we noticed a different culture evolving like when we interview people for jobs, the first thing they was asked, do you have a Nighthawk? You know, and how many hours I have to work. And also at that time with some of the new ones, trying to encourage them to get out and talk with patients. You know, they want to sit in their room with the door shut and turn out the work. And so I was trying to overcome that in our practice. And one thing we've done to get rid of that is like, for instance, our president of the group now, we give more time off. And like, we have one guy now that's on the board of directors of the hospital and in line become chair of the board. And we give them time off and we pay people to go to meetings because we take a value in it. Because if you don't do something with people like me that was involved with organized radiology and the patients we serve, then they're missing out on something And so we have to look for incentives to get people to allow the value of spending time with other physicians and spending time at these meetings, sometimes at night or early in the morning, to overcome this apathy which is occurring. I hadn't read that article in a long time now, but we did get a lot of feedback and a lot of comments on it and a lot of agreement on it. So a big point about avoiding apathy was really avoiding not getting out of the reading room, interacting with patients, interacting with the medical staff, doing more than just reading the cases. That's essentially what you were combating. Correct. You know, I mentioned we all have battles. We had battles back in the 70s. And we have battles now, and there always will be, and you need to select your battles. But also, if you're 10 steps ahead, you can become a leader. But if you get 100 yards ahead, you become a target. And so you have to bring people along, or you get too far ahead. And so networking is so important. Let me give you an example. An AMA meeting. 
we were sitting around with Harvey Neiman, Bill Bell, and, and Van Moore, and a few other people on lung screening. We suggested we have a resolution on lung screening to the AMA to take the CMS. And I mentioned, as soon as the radiologists bring up something on lung screening, people are going to say, what are those radiologists trying to do to us? So what I did, I was close friends with a gastroenterologist of the Florida Medical Association, and I asked him to present the resolution once it convinced him. And I got Bill Ballin to go with me to the Florida section at the AMA meeting, which I think was in Chicago at the time. And they supported it. So we got Florida to make the resolution. After they made the resolution, Van Moore stood up and said, I'm so-and-so a radiologist. And I think that's a great idea, and we suck at the motion. So sometimes you have to use other people because as soon as a radiologist stands up many times, physicians wonder, what are those radiologists trying to do for us? Well, we passed a bill in Florida about the RAs. And I learned from California that the orthopedists out there defeated it. So I went to the president of the orthopedic group, president of the cardiology group, saying this has nothing to do with y'all. Y'all certainly wouldn't like y'all to have a resolution before the legislature, and we radiologists defeat it when it has nothing to do with us. So sometimes you have to plan ahead and use strategy as we did with the lung screening type thing. So important and you know, emphasizing the role of networking and bringing other folks along. That's something that we've heard about in many of the conversations we've had before. What bits of advice would you give to a young leader in radiology that really wants to be as broadly effective in terms of being an effective networker? What have you found to work the best for you? Well, first of all, you don't start out by being on the top. To be chair of a committee, you have to join a committee. You don't immediately become on the council steering committee, you have to have the exposure. You need to become an alternate counselor or counselor. Everybody doesn't have the same talents. There's some that's better on the local level. There's some better on the state and there's some better on the national. But regardless of what level it is, you have to start somewhere on a committee and eventually you'll be the chair and it takes time and there are rewards with it because my wife and I have made so many dear friends, and the thing I liked about the FRS and the ACR was they accepted our spouses along the way, and it really became like a family, and we still get Christmas cards and everything else, and I've been able to live a life I never dreamed of. Now, you mentioned a little while ago that you were the Grand Marshal of the Moultrie Georgia Christmas Parade. How did that invitation come your way? Well... I had written books about growing up in Conquit County, Moultrie, Georgia. The first book had five editions called Simpler Times, the second one called More Simpler Times, and then I was contributing author to a book called Country Soul with Dolly Parton, Jeff Foxworthy, and Lee Greenwood. What happened was I wrote a national medical article, didn't hear from a soul, then finally I wrote one about Grandma and some of her wisdom, and I started hearing from places. I wrote for the Florida Radiological and Monthly. Now I'm writing for the senior retired. And the funds from my book go to provide the administrative care for something called the We Care Program. So the same physician in Tallahassee is not seeing charity patients. 
and it's evenly distributed. And there's two hospitals here, and they're distributed, radiology associate, surgery, pathology. And as a result, we've been able to deliver over $170 million worth of care to the indigents. And that's just writing about growing up in Moultrie, Georgia. But because of the books, they decided to have me as the Grand Marshal. And it was very interesting. They had the lead tractors pulling floats and everything. And something I never dreamed of, people lined up around the courthouse square and here we come waving, then hearing all these people lined up along the sidewalk hollering, hey, Pedro. <laughs> and it was very touching. During the parade, were you sitting on the back of a huge Cadillac convertible waving to the crowds? How did that go down? No, I was in the back of a Mercedes convertible. Very nice. And I was also very touched. The governor of Georgia gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award. What amazing recognition. Now, I noticed that 10 years after serving as Grand Marshal, you delivered the Christmas talk at Georgia's governor's mansion in Atlanta. Was the governor there for that talk? Yes. What did you speak about? I just told Christmas stories, and there was one special one. I don't know if you have time for it. Sure, let's hear the special Christmas story. The title of the story is, Is There Really a Santa Claus? And this is a true story. Pedro always looked forward to the church play at Christmas. Pedro usually got to play the donkey, except the one time they used a real donkey. At the Christmas play, everybody practiced their parts. One time at the play, Robert was going to be asked, who made you? And he spoke to answer God. The night arrived and the question was asked three times, who made you? And nobody responded until Thelma said, the little boy that God made is home with the chicken pox. The play concluded with the off-key children's gospel singers. Well, in 1949, school let out for Christmas, and Pedro and Emmett were riding the school bus home, talking and thinking about the Santa Claus. Emmett said that he had tried to be good and wanted a BB gun. Robert, who was listening to the conversation, said that last year on Christmas Eve, he heard Santa Claus holler and mumble dead gummit when he stumbled over his dog in the dark. Pedro had gotten old enough and big enough and bright enough to know that Santa Claus was going to bring him his favorite toys. He needed to pray real loud so Mama, Daddy, and Grandmama could hear him. He also knew that it helped to turn down the pages in the Sears Roebuck catalog in the outhouse. Pedro wanted to believe in Santa Claus just like Emmett, who was younger. Christmas morning arrived, and there it was, the shiny new bicycle, just like Pedro wanted. And there was some fruit and a brand-new Little Red Rider BB gun with some Daisy BBs. Pedro couldn't wait to show Emmett and headed to Emmett's house. On arrival, Emmett looked over at Pedro, barely able to speak, and said, Pedro, Santa Claus didn't come. Either I've been bad or he ran out of toys. Pedro could see the hurt in Emmett's eyes and hear the disappointment in Emmett's voice. Pedro, without thinking, replied, Emmett, Sandy did come. He thought you would spend the night with me and left your BB gun at my house, and I was bringing it to you. Emmett grinned like a baked possum, was excited as a bug in a tater patch. Emmett hugged Pedro, and Pedro hugged back. It was then at nine years old, and there at that moment, that Pedro once again learned there really was a Santa Claus. 
On the way home on his new bike without his BB gun, Pedro kept thinking, please, Mama, don't be mad. And she wasn't. Wow. Now, was there really an Emmett in your growing up? Yes. And that's a true story. That's a true story. Wow. What a tender heart. Thank you for sharing that. You've given so many interesting addresses. You gave a keynote address to the Daughters of the American Revolution titled Looking Back in Order to Look Ahead. What was your message to the Daughters? Actually, the message was similar about growing up in the South. One of them was Southerners ain't ignorant. <laughs> you know, being Southerners, a bunch of things is knowing where your people came from, how they got there, where they're buried, who married who or should have and didn't. But the bottom line was what makes the people down there great and what makes the area down there great is the people. And I mentioned the names in the audience. It's the people that makes them great. And even those that are passed on, they live on in lives they leave behind, in whom they have blessed, they live a life again and shall live through the years. And those people continue to live on through us after our lives have been touched by them. That's beautiful, too. The accolades go on and on, and we'll have to bring it to a conclusion at some point here, but there are a couple of more that I just want to touch on. You were listed as a top breast cancer specialist by Red Book and the Ladies Home Journal. Now, how did a pediatric radiologist develop a national reputation as a breast imager for the Red Book and Ladies Home Journal? Well, that was nominated by other physicians, not me. I had nothing to do with it. But when I arrived, I was the only subspecialty here, so I had to practice diagnostic radiology, too. Then later, we needed pediatric radiologists, and there was two of us. But when it was about years ago, we'd do maybe one mammogram a day. And then all of a sudden, somebody like Rockefeller would get breast cancer, and all of a sudden, everybody wants one on that day, and you're not prepared for it. Then it eases back off. But eventually, it evolved where now we're doing in a private office 250 a day. And so I did a lot of breast biopsies, steratactic, a lot of them under ultrasound, and I would so they don't slip through the cracks, contact the physicians, talk to them, talk to the patient. You say, how'd that evolve? It had to evolve either from patients or referring physicians, because I had nothing to do with that. I see that you also served on the boards of directors for the Big Bend Community Orchestra and the Leon High School Band. Are you a musician? No, we had children. Pat and I have... 15 grandchildren and six children, and they were all in the band. Now, the artist series, we were on the board. Somebody just asked us to be on the board, and we need the fundraiser, and so we had what we called teas and stuff and recognized musicians from Florida State University. We had it in our home. We had two or three home raisers in our home to raise money for the artist series and became friends with them and been involved with their fundraising. I'm not a musician, and so I don't even tend to be a writer. I just put words down to express what you feel in the heart, you know. Amongst the charitable organizations, and there's many charitable organizations that you've supported over the years, I wanted to ask you about one more, and that is the Big Bend Hospice, where you volunteered for several years. Would you tell us a bit about your work there? A lot of the physicians that are full-time there, like we're surgeons or internists, and then when they slow down, they go to the hospice. 
But those same physicians that I've worked with over the years that have gotten to know me and my family. And so consequently, the same thing there is fundraising. And also during Christmas, we set up trees in the mall where people can come and hang something in memory of their family and make a donation, which all goes to hospice. You know, we've all had friends and family that the time comes and it goes to hospice, so I think that's a rewarding fundraiser and working with them. Indeed it is. Now, you mentioned that you've got 15 grandkids and six children. Do they live nearby? Do you get together as a family? What's your family life like these days? There's three of them that lives by. Right now, involved in a campaign. My brother-in-law's brother is mayor of Tallahassee. And right now he's involved in a campaign, but we have three children here, one in South Florida, one in Charleston, and one in Kentucky. So all sort of there in the South, and you spend time going and visiting with them all. Of course, during COVID, didn't travel as much, but now we try to spend time, or they try to spend time with us. I had to build a bigger room on the house, 1,600 square foot, so we could all gather in at Thanksgiving and Christmas and my wife loves to decorate. I live on acreage, and I like to dig as long as it's not for survival. We have three miles of irrigation for flowers, but my wife likes to garden, and she plants corn and watermelons and cantaloupe and okra and tomatoes. And so I still like to do that. I just didn't want to do it for a living. So how are you spending your days now? Are you still as active in supporting charitable organizations? Yeah. Also, I'm spending a lot of time speaking. I'm giving motivational talks like the high school. Said if I can do it, so can you from where I came from and give them some of the books. I've gone around different high schools and even churches. And sad to say, in the past two years, I've had to give about six eulogies. But it's almost when you get started in something, one thing leads to another. Somebody will hear you and want you to come. I've been very fortunate to be the speaker in about 40-something states. At first, I'd talk about radiological things, then they'd tell me, you know, we've been sitting in meetings all day. Just tell us about growing up and grandma. You know, little states like Idaho or Wyoming, then bigger states like New York, I've enjoyed. And what you do is you just have to speak from the heart, and best things are felt in the heart. So true. I can't help but notice a blog spot called Sweet Southern Days. Is that something that you're contributing to? Yeah. My wife has a blog called Sweet Southern Days. She loves photography. It has anything on there, the travels. She has a blog on Mercy University, and in fact, next week, Mercy University is giving her an appointed honorary college diploma from Mercer. So we'll have to go out and meet with the president. It's homecoming. They'll call her down on the football field at halftime and recognize her. So I've been very, very fortunate with my family and very fortunate with my wife. Seems that you have a wonderful family and wonderful relationship with your wife and your kids. One last question. You know, what you have brought to the people around you has clearly been very, very impactful. What advice would you give to a young physician who is inspired by your journey and would like to pursue leadership? I would say if I can have the road I traveled as an independent radiologist, 
I think anybody can do it. It's like Dr. Gay told me, you just have to want to bad enough. If you want to bad enough, the hard work and discipline will fall into place. But don't expect to start out at the top. You start out at the bottom, start out with a committee and become chair of the committee. And the rewards are just endless. You will meet wonderful people. It'll become like family. And you'll touch a lot of lives and a lot of lives will touch you. Well, Dr. Charlie Williams, I can't thank you enough for sharing your remarkable life, your childhood, your upbringing, and your very, very refreshing perspectives that have led for you to be so impactful for our field in Florida and nationally. It's really inspiring to hear your stories and to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Taking the Lead. Well, thank you. It's been an honor and it's nice to chat with you. Wish everybody the best. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.